Now, it says in John chapter 6 and verse 4, just to set the scene, John makes this comment that it was the Passover, a feast of the Jews, which was near. Now, in Jerusalem, Passover time was a time of great expectations and excitement. There were patriotic feelings that would well up within the Jews because they were thinking about the significance of the Passover. It was given to them and it spoke to them of deliverance, of freedom, of escape from an oppressor. And they felt the hand of an oppressor everywhere they looked and everywhere they went because the Roman Empire had its influence, you know, had even, they even had a tower in the middle of uh, the temple precinct. Romans were everywhere and the Jews hated it. It was offensive to the Jews and all they wanted was to get rid of the Romans and the glory of the kingdom of Israel to be established again. And so at Passover time, there were millions of them that would pour into Jerusalem. They'd flow in from all over the world and they would think about their deliverance from the past and yearn for a future deliverance. And so, of course, at this time of the year, the Jews were heightened in their expectancy and looking for the deliverer. And there was in the Old Testament a prophecy that God gave to Moses, and we have a record of that in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And this prophecy talks about a prophet that God was going to send, a prophet like me, says Moses, as he's recounting this. And God had told him that he was going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses, from among your brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command him. So the words of this special prophet, the one that God would send, was going to be from God and his authority would be from God and people had to listen to him. It was essential that they listen to this prophet. So, you know, in the back of the, the Jewish minds, everyone, every Jew knew this passage. Every Jew knew their history very well. They knew their Bibles far better than probably most, if not all of us. So when Jesus performs this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, which is at the start of John chapter 6, can you imagine the thoughts that would well up in the minds of the men and the women and the children as they watched Jesus miraculously multiplying these loaves, this bread, and then this fish as a little garnish for the bread itself? Well, it says what happened in verse 14. These men, when they saw the miracle that Jesus did, they said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. The prophet of Deuteronomy 18, they couldn't miss it. This miracle, or this semeon, this sign, was something that spoke volumes to the Jewish people and they could not miss who this was. Why did they associate Jesus with the prophet like Moses? I'm sure it was because of the, the multiplying of the bread. And in their minds, they were thinking of a notable thing that happened after the Exodus. After the Exodus from Egypt, you all know the story, or presumably, or you all know the story, but just um, for a bit of background, the people of Israel broke faith with God in the wilderness after they left Egypt and they had to wander for 40 years. And God spoke 
um, a word to Moses and said, I'm going to provide food, bread from heaven, he calls it, for the people of Israel. And it's going to be enough for them to sustain them as they go through the wilderness. Let's just turn back to Exodus chapter 16. And that's where God speaks of the manna that he's going to provide. Exodus chapter 16. So the Jews are in the wilderness, the Hebrews, and they've been complaining because they don't have any food. And God speaks, and in verse 14, it says that when the dew that lay on the ground was gone up, upon the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost of the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said, what is it? Manna. What is it? That's what it means, the word manna. But because they didn't understand what it was. And Moses said, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now, as you go through this passage here, you'll notice that the manna, the emphasis of it was that it only lasted for one day. So you would go out and you would gather enough for the day and if you kept it up, if you thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll gather three days' worth and then I have to go out for the next two days, well, it says in verse 20 that it would breed worms and stink. You had to gather enough for each day, and it was only enough for each day, the exception being the Sabbath, where they weren't allowed to work, so they had to gather two days' worth, and that, that day it would last for two days. So the emphasis there is on the fact that it was only enough for one day and then it ran out. Now, when you think about the amount of manna that God had to provide for the children of Israel, it's absolutely astounding. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 37, it says that there were 600,000 men besides women and children. So me being a bit of a nerd, I like calculating just how much bread there would have been. I don't know, it's just something I do. Um, so let's just say there's 1.8 million people. So there's... Um, a woman and a child for every man, on average, 1.8 million people. So if you, um, the bread that we are aware of is, you know, a loaf of, say, Helga's bread. Um, <clears throat> if you laid <laughs> the loaves of bread end to end, they'd stretch for 318 kilometres. If you stack them up in this hole here, I think you'd fill the hole to the roof about 10 times. Full of loaves of bread, you know, sandwiched in and no pun intended, sorry. Um, a lot of bread every single day for 40 years was provided by God and it sustained the people of Israel and kept them alive the whole way through the wilderness. It's amazing. It was a miracle and it was a continual miracle and when the Jews saw Jesus dividing the bread, multiplying it and providing it and there was enough for everyone, they couldn't miss it. This is the prophet, the prophet like Moses. So let's just have a look. There's another interesting passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is also talking about the manna. And it actually tells us why God gave the manna, the reason behind it, because, of course, he gave it to them to sustain them, but there was a spiritual lesson that they were supposed to learn from the manner that he provided. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God talks about, through Moses, the commandments in verse 1. All the commandments which I command you this day you shall observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers. And you will remember all the way that the Lord God, your God, led you these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and prove you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Remember, what is it? Manna. Neither your fathers knew. They'd never seen it before. So that he might make you know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. So that was the whole reason this manna was given. The spiritual lesson behind the manna was to show them that that one occasion in Exodus chapter 16 where God said, yep, I'm going to provide bread for you. He said the word and tons and tons and tons of bread every single day was provided for the people for 40 years and it kept them alive. So God's words are trustworthy God speaks, we can believe what he says and there's a huge link here, isn't there, between the manner, the word that God speaks and the prophet that is predicted, the prophet like Moses, whose words were the words of God that they needed to listen to. So we can trust the words of God and they were being told that this prophet's words you can trust just like the word of God. Now, the following day, if we go back to John chapter 6, <clears throat> after the miracle, there's obviously other stuff that happens, but we're just focusing on um, the bread stuff tonight. So they discover that Jesus isn't there anymore, and miraculously, as we know, he's made it to the other side by walking on the water. But the people, when they see that Jesus isn't there, they rush around trying to find him, and they discover him verse 24, in Capernaum. And at the end of that little section that we had read tonight by Mike, uh, in verse 59, we learn that it's in the synagogue in Capernaum, verse 59. So they came to Jesus and they'd obviously experienced the miracle of the day before. And Jesus is very abrupt when he speaks to them. He says in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you aren't seeking me because you saw the miracles, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Now, when I read this passage and read this passage and read this passage, you know when you're familiar with a passage and you just think, Jesus is telling them off for wanting to see another miracle. You know, he, this is what I thought. Jesus wanted them to think about the words that he was speaking about, not the miracles. But that's not what the verse says. And in fact, Jesus wanted them to follow him because of the miracle. The word miracle there again is, is the word sign. And the sign that he'd given them of the feeding of the 5,000 was the evidence that they needed to understand that he was the prophet, that his words were to be trusted. And the rest of this section that he talks about, he continues on with this thought, assuming the authority of the prophet the one whose words are the words of God. So it would have been fine if they'd just followed him because they'd seen the sign and they wanted to know more because he was the prophet. 
But they had come for a much baser reason. They just wanted a free meal. It's amazing what people do for a free meal. These people ran the whole way around the lake, or sailed across the lake, seeking out Jesus and eventually found him, hoping for another feed. Another feed of loaves and fishes, an unlimited supply, just like there was in the wilderness. But Jesus is telling them that that's not what I want you to follow me for. You need to be thinking about more important things. So he tells them not to work, verse 27, don't work for the meat or the bread which perishes, but rather for the meat which endures to eternal, everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you. And they ask him cynically, or sorry, not cynically, in verse 28, what shall we do, what work shall we do, which is a connection to that word in verse 27, labour or work, what work do we need to do so that we might work the works of God? The answer is simple in verse 29. Believe him whom he has sent, the prophet, and I am the prophet. Now, this speech that Jesus gives is, it has a lot of complex thoughts, a lot of profound thoughts, and I've just tried to summarise it into what I've called, um, perhaps a little bit corny, five loaves. Again, no pun intended, but um, five basic messages that Jesus speaks about. And he he kind of repeats and revisits and interweaves these themes throughout this address. So let's just call them five loaves because there was five loaves with the feeding of the 5,000. And there's at least five, there's probably more themes, but for the sake of simplicity, we'll talk about these tonight. And the first um, I'll suggest to you is that Jesus reveals that he has special authority from God. Profound authority. And it's amazing when you look at the chapter and just pick out all the references that Jesus makes to who he claims to be, you'll be astonished. We'll go through them in a sec. Natural bread perishes and it's of no benefit in the end. I don't want you to follow me because of natural bread. Even natural bread from heaven, even miraculous bread, manna or bread that I've given, that's not why I want you to follow me. There's something more important that I'm driving at. Because I'm offering you bread, this is the third loaf, bread that leads to eternal life. But the eternal life isn't going to happen now, not like you expect. It's going to happen later. I'm calling people to follow me and everyone that chooses to follow me and believe my words, they're not choosing that of their own accord. They're not, you know, there's nothing noble in them that they can, you know, claim a reward for because it's a work of God. The people that come to me, that choose to follow me, are actually drawn by God and I have been charged with their eternal future. I will raise them up at the last day. I'll protect them and none of them shall perish. That's what God's charged me with. This is what Jesus is saying. And the last one, of course, our theme for tonight, I'm the bread of life and you need to eat me. I'll put these up at the end so if you're 
feverishly trying to scribble them all down. Um, we'll be going through them all and I'll have them up one at a time and then at the end I'll put the, this slide back up on the screen so you can see it again. Um, so let's just tackle them one at a time. Jesus has special authority from God. Now I was quite staggered at the, the variety and the range of claims that Jesus makes in this chapter because you know, there, there were people that didn't, didn't understand what Jesus was claiming to be, who he was. And the things that Jesus says here are staggering. You couldn't miss them if you tried. Have a look at some of the things that he claims. I can't even see my own screen here, so I have to read off the back behind me. He says in verse 27 that God has set his seal on me. He says in verse 29, you have to believe in me whom God has sent. God has actually sent me. I came down from heaven and I give life. I am the bread of life. He says that three times in this chapter. Come to me, believe in me. Um, God has given me authority, verse 27. I've come down from heaven again and I've come to do the will of him that sent me. That's God. The will of God who sent me. He sent me. He has given me authority. Um, he calls God his father. His father sent him. We can go through this. Tons and tons of claims that he makes. I'm from God. I'm the bread of life again. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. The living father sent me. No one can come to me unless it's granted by the father. And you might, I don't know, I guess... Um, in my familiarity with the gospel records and, and perhaps the uncertainty that people had over the identity of Jesus, perhaps you think that he wasn't clear when he spoke and even up until the very end people really didn't know. But he's very clear here where his authority came from, who his father was, what his mission was. Although he's speaking in cryptic language, it's quite profound what he claims. And the Jews would have been amazed I guess and perhaps some of them were outraged by the things that he claimed certainly many left him after the speech that he gave here because of some of the disturbing things that he wanted them to do so Jesus throughout this chapter claims special authority from God and it's all linked isn't it to the fact that he is the prophet that should come into the world that they had identified in verse 14 Jesus has special authority from God. So the second loaf is that natural bread perishes and it's of no benefit in the end. Now, throughout this um, chapter, again, uh, I've just put up a little table for you um, which helps to highlight what, um, what Jesus illustrates and I'm just, hang on a second, I'm just going to allow me to read my own screen, because it's so small. So he puts up a contrast between manna and natural bread. Now you would say that manna is miraculous bread that God provided, and it was, but essentially it just was enough for the day for every person. It's the same as natural bread. God provided it and he wanted them to understand spiritual lessons. Remember the spiritual lesson was man lives not by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
So in verse 27, he calls natural bread food that perishes. And he also says that um, the spiritual bread, the bread that he is going to supply, is bread that leads to eternal life. In verse 32, he talks about bread from heaven, the manna. And then he contrasts that with the true bread from heaven, which he claims is himself. And then you'll see there's three verses there where Jesus says, I am the bread of life or the living bread that came down from heaven. <clears throat> and finally, there's another contrast there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry, have a drink. Your fathers ate manna and died in the wilderness. But in contrast, if you eat the bread that I'm going to give, you'll never die. You'll live forever. Again, he says that on a number of occasions. So there's this contrast that he sets out between natural bread and the bread that he would supply, which he says he himself <clears throat> embodies. He is the bread from heaven. So Jesus wasn't about natural food at all. He, he told them off for coming to, to seek a free feed. He wasn't going to give them any more natural bread. He wanted them to eat the spiritual bread that he was going to give. <clears throat> the third loaf, the third teaching of Jesus that I've pulled out of these um, wonderful verses here. Jesus offers bread that will lead to eternal life but it's going to happen later. So again and again through the passage, Jesus talks about raising people up at the last day. So this eternal life that he promises through the bread is promised there in verse 39. I'll raise it up at the last day. It's, it's again in verse 40. I'll raise it up at the last day. Verse 44, I'll raise up at the last day. Verse 54, I'll raise him up at the last day. So for a Jew that's listening to this, the very fact that he says, I'll raise him up, it actually implies that all of these people, faithful or not, are going to die. Their life is going to be lived, continue on, they'll eventually die, but Jesus will raise them up at the last day. It's a time in the future. This is Jesus' message. Yes, this bread leads to eternal life, but it's not now. It's not in the way that you would expect. It's a long way off. And when you look at what the Jews understood by the last day, you remember the, the um, story of Lazarus, um, <clears throat> where Mary says um, to Jesus, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. And there's another passage in John 12, 48, where it talks about a time of judgment as well. And perhaps in the mind of um, the Jews, perhaps, um, they might have thought of a passage like, um, I'll just read out this for you, in Daniel chapter 12, um, where Daniel is told, um, he has a special message and God tells him to seal it up because the time of this message is a long way into the future. And he says in verse 13 of Daniel 12, Go your way till the end be, for you shall rest, you'll die, but you'll stand in your light at the end of the days. And in the context of this chapter, 
There's a whole heap of, of verses which talk about you know, Michael coming, a great prince which stands for the children of the people. There'll be a time of trouble such as never was. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, the bread which leads to eternal life, some to shame and everlasting contempt, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. So the Jews certainly knew what Jesus was talking about when he referred to the latter days or the last day. And there's a whole bunch of quotes um, that we could go to, and we don't have time tonight, but quotes like Daniel chapter 2, or Daniel chapter 10, or Hosea, or Ezekiel 38, or Isaiah 2, they all talk about the last days. And there's a whole range of prophecies of things that had to happen in the last days, which the Jews at the time had no comprehension of. They hadn't put them all together. They didn't understand that all these other things needed to happen first before salvation and deliverance would come. And here they were looking for deliverance from the Romans in the here and now. You might say they were looking for natural bread. They were looking for immediate benefits to the teaching of Jesus. And in fact, in John chapter 6, it says that they were going to take him and make him a king by force. And Jesus had to push them away at the time, force them away, shut down their ambitions and say, no, I'm not going to lead you against the Romans. I'm not going to deliver you now. That's not what I'm here for. An incredibly difficult temptation that Jesus had to overcome. But he did that because his message was not about the immediate future. It was about a day long into the future. So there were many thoughts in the teaching of Jesus here that you might say were offensive. They confused people. They weren't sure of what Jesus was talking about. And you might even ask, oh, we didn't read this tonight, but in, in verses 62 and 63 of John chapter 6, <clears throat> on top of you know, asking people to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which we'll get to in a moment, he says, what? And if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before. This was something that Jesus also indicates, which implies that, again, there were other things that needed to happen. Jesus was ascending into heaven. A, many, a great many prophecies were going to be fulfilled before that great day of the resurrection and eternal life for the faithful. So the fourth teaching that we, we mentioned was that everyone that believes in me is called by God. And this is a wonderful, a wonderful and encouraging thing that, um, that Jesus sought to, to teach people. Now it says in, verse, in verses 37, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. And in verse 39, this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So God had given Jesus a very special and important job to do. He was going to lead people 
to Jesus to call them and draw them. And Jesus was not to refuse them. He was to, to allow them to come to him. And furthermore, he was not allowed, as it says there in verse 39, to lose anyone. All of them were precious and all of them were to be raised up at the last day. And this is an amazing privileged position and it's a profound teaching, isn't it? Because all of us have free will. We all desire to be like God. We all come to Christ and, and have understood the teachings that God has given and we've come here as we think of our own free will. But the work is a work of God. He's working in us and calling us and drawing us to his son. And we are precious and valuable to the son, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be raised if we are one of his believers, one of his followers. It's a wonderful and an encouraging message that Jesus gives. And furthermore, he says that no one can come to me unless God draws him. It's impossible to come to Jesus unless God has drawn him. So God is at work and very active in the lives of believers down through time right up until our day. So there's also, I guess, an implicit mention there that there are people who would not believe and it meant that they also had not been called by the Father. And as Jesus goes through this address, it's clear that he understands that some of these people are not going to walk with him. They're going to turn away and walk away from Jesus and his teaching, despite the fact that he was the prophet that should come into the world. In verse 36, he accuses those who followed him, you have seen me and have believed not. And in verse 64 and 65, there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. So Jesus knew that there were those who desired to understand him and his message that were coming to him because God had drawn them and there were those who were there just for the natural, for the, for the present, and they had not been called by God, and they would turn away and leave. So perhaps the last teaching of Jesus here is the most cryptic, but it's the one we've all come here tonight to, to learn about. Jesus is the bread of life, as he's claimed, and there's, there's three verses which talk about Jesus being the bread of life. Um, he repeats that message over and over again. But the weird thing to the Jews and, and disgusting thing to the Jews is that Jesus steps it up a level, not just claiming that he is the bread of God, but he wants people to eat his body and drink his blood. So what does it mean to eat Jesus' body and drink his blood? So in verse, I mean, it's not difficult, this message to understand, but Jesus is speaking in a cryptic way um, because there's a more profound um, <clears throat> teaching behind it. So the obvious thing to conclude by that is, well, Jesus is just saying, believe me. And he says that over and again in the chapter. Believe in me, he says it in verse, as I've got up there, verse 
29, verse 40 and verse 47. He says, come to me, in verse 36 and 37. So, of course, believing and coming to Jesus are important and we need to do that. But in saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he put a lot of people off. He put a lot of people offside because this was the most offensive thing almost that you could you could say to a Jew. They were very particular about eating things that were clean and staying away from unclean things, particularly blood. They were not allowed to eat blood. And animals had to be killed in a particular way, even today. The same um, laws are observed stringently by Jews. So to say you had to eat human flesh and drink human blood was utterly repulsive to a Jewish mind. And Jesus says it over and again in these last verses, verses 51 through 58. And the message here is that Jesus isn't just someone we need to believe and someone we need to listen to. Coming to Jesus and following Jesus has to be an absolutely life-changing experience. It's a transformation from a natural being into a spiritual being. It's a work that involves participating in the Lord's body and blood, in sharing it, in partaking of it. Now, in every other gospel, Matthew and Mark and Luke, they all have a record of the Last Supper, when Jesus shared bread and wine with his disciples. And John doesn't have a, a record of that. And it has been said by by others that perhaps this is John's equivalent of the Last Supper, this, this passage here. And the themes that come out of eating flesh and drinking blood um, and of bread and of wine, they are all interlinked, aren't they, with the Last Supper. Excuse me. So our thoughts might naturally go to the emblems when we think about eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood. Because every Sunday, baptised believers come together to remember the Lord in bread and wine. And we eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus. And we, we do that because we want to remind ourselves of Jesus, of, of what he was like, of the way he lived, of the incredible sacrifice that, that he made and his father made in laying down his life that we might be saved but the thoughts continue, don't they? Matthew 26, verse 26 says that Jesus, on the night in which he died, uh, sorry, in which he was, he was to be crucified, he, he said, take and eat this bread, which is my body. And then he also took the cup and said, you know, drink this, it's my blood of the new covenant. So are we, are we literally drinking Jesus' blood and eating his bread when we have the bread and wine. That's what some religions would have you believe. But Jesus is, is driving at something much more um, profound spiritually. So just let's have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because I think this, this drives... This drives at the heart of, of what Jesus is saying. 
So we obviously read 1 Corinthians 11 quite a bit, but some of the thoughts around the, the bread and the wine begin back in chapter 10. In verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? The bread which we break... <coughs> sorry, did I say the wrong thing? Communion of the blood of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? I'm just going to read that again from the ESV. Cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This is something that we, when we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are pledging to participate in Jesus' body and blood. That is his life. The blood represented his life, but also the sacrifice that he made of putting to death his natural desires and submitting to the will of God. So this is a transformation. It's a symbolic transformation that we are partaking of when we eat the bread and drink the wine. So Jesus is actually doing exactly what the Jews wanted at the time. He's leading a revolution he is transforming the natural order of things, not just delivering them from the Romans. What a trivial conquest that would have been. He is transforming the hearts and minds of people that are drawn to him by God the Father, God his Father, sorry, and, and offering them a chance to partake in his life and in his death. And it was a revolution that Jesus began which is ultimately going to lead to the total defeat of sin and death, salvation, ultimate salvation, eternal life for all that would come to Jesus. So the thoughts that Jesus offer uh, in this passage are, are quite profound and they're quite deep. But he actually kind of, I guess, hints at it in a way even in John chapter 6, because he says that he wanted people to abide in him and he said <clears throat> that he wanted people to live because of him. Now, of course, when he talks about living because of Jesus, you might think, well, that's talking about eternal life, but it's also driving at the motivation as to why people live. People that are drawn by God, when they abide in him, he abides in them, and when they live, they live because of Jesus Christ. And that is what eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is all about. And we mentioned 1 Corinthians 16 there. So we've explored quite a few um, thoughts tonight. They're profound and they're deep. Teachings of the Lord about who he was, his authority about the contrast between what, what we naturally seek and what we should be seeking spiritually. We've been shown that Jesus offers bread that's going to lead to eternal life, but not 
in the way that you would naturally want. It involves an absolute change in the way we think and in the way we live. And everyone that's drawn to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is called by God and we're, we're asked to participate in Jesus' life and in his death and in his resurrection. So there's some wonderful and some deep and profound thoughts there for us to think about and I guess we'll leave it there. Thanks.